So today we're going to talk about an article that Mary brought up, uh, I guess it was a week ago, two weeks ago, uh, and it was basically build or buy, borrow, and die, I think was the, yeah, this sort was, of the topic. This was an article that came out uh, actually in July in the Wall Street Journal, and um, it talked about the difference between truly wealthy Americans and everyone else, and the strategy that they were discussing was buying assets, building them up borrowing against them, and then how they get passed along when they die. And this sparked a lot of conversation in our office because right. uh, the article was um, almost myopically focused on the stock market, it seems like. Um, a lot of focus there and uh, left out some of the places that we see our wealthy clients participating in. So we wanted to go through this a little bit because I definitely think that the wealthy look at debt very differently than normal Americans, right? If, if you talk about debt, when you're talking to someone who's really wealthy, they frequently don't even use that term. They use the word leverage, uh, right? right? And when you talk to um, people who are struggling with their budget, they're talking about debt because specifically they're addressing consumer debt. And there is certainly a pervasive mentality among like middle-class Americans in particular that debt is bad. And you just don't find that same philosophy among extremely wealthy uh, people in this country. And so I thought it would be really interesting to talk through this idea of buy, borrow, and die. In our office, we frequently refer to it as build, borrow, and pass it along, just because it's not quite so morbid. Um, but I think uh, one of the areas that we see people do this most frequently is actually real estate because of the way real estate is taxed right now. And so um, an example of this would be buying, uh, let's just say one rental property or building one rental property and you decide you're gonna build it. And at the end of it, um, let's say the house is worth, I'm, I don't know, 850. I'm gonna do math from properties I've seen. Um, you, you end up kind of being in an 850 and then you sell the property for 1.4. What a lot of people would do at that point in time is they would just sell the property, pay capital gains taxes, um, and then, you know, take whatever's left over. And so based on those margins, you're paying 20, 24% in taxes, the way capital right. gains are at the time of this recording. And, um, and We're talking about and, changing that. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that actually, I think, becomes relevant in some of this strategy, too. But so so that's what most people would do. And then we find a lot of times that people won't necessarily roll all of that back into growth or investments. They're going to upgrade their houses, buy a new car, spend a lot of that. But when you look at what the really wealthy do, um, they might participate in something called the 1031 exchange, where right. they roll all of the gains tax free into new properties. And so if you did that, and this time um, you took the equity and you used that to buy four more properties and you repeated the process, then you can see that your equity is getting exponentially bigger. And if you, at the end of that time period, did it again, um, let's say at that point, you've gone through several iterations of this, and now you have $10 million worth of equity tied up in the properties. Here's where it gets interesting is that that's a lot of equity sitting there. If you've got $10 million worth of equity somewhere, you might right. be like, well, hang on a second. I want to enjoy some of that. And what the wealthy tend to do is they'll do a cash out loan at, at some point and pull cash out of it and make sure that the debt service on those loans can cover 100% of the cost. 
So of that 10 million, they may pull out $7 million of that equity and then have renters paying all of that uh, mortgage. There's no actual cost to them. Well, what's amazing is that loans are not taxable. Think about getting the mortgage on your house. You didn't pay taxes on that money. When you bought a car and you financed it, you didn't pay taxes on that money. And so when you do that cash out loan in that scenario, you would be accessing $7 million income tax free. Someone else is rebuilding that equity in the properties for you. And you have access to all of that money and you're not paying taxes on it. That's a, that's a huge loophole right there for someone who's disciplined enough to go through that process. So here's where it gets even more interesting. And and this is the part that in the article, they said, buy, borrow, die. I'm going to say, pass it along just because I'm more of an optimist. Yeah. When you graduate the planet. Um, And what's interesting here is that with real estate, when you um, leave it to your heirs, your heirs get a step up in basis. So that $10 million worth of equity in those properties, whatever the value of that property is on the day of your death. That is the value that um, kind of begins everything from there is taxable for your heirs, but up until that point, they've received that step up. And so that is uh, not income taxable at that point. So not only did you have the ability to access that money during your lifetime, but you've created some tax efficiencies that are pretty great for your heirs in this scenario. Right. Yeah. And you've, and you've had the, the use and enjoyment and the enjoyment of the dollar the whole time. Right, which right. I think is really kind of cool. Right. And, and I think that actually really, we, we've had this conversation a little bit before and we sort of had the epiphany, I guess a couple of weeks ago with some of the, some of the folks in our office, this idea that the hardest thing for a lot of our clients to get, there, there's kind of three components. And one of them is this idea of flow versus buckets. Yes. Right? And you mentioned at the very beginning, hey, I'm going to go build this house. I'm going to get it up. It's, I bought it for 850. I'm selling it for 1.4. So I've got 550 in, in gain. And so I'm going to take that money, move it into a different bucket, and then just go spend it down or do something with it. Right. And, and you're thinking, I've got this house that's a bucket. Now the house is gone. Now I have this cash that's a bucket. And they're, they're thinking in, in sort of fixed components like silos. Mm-hmm. It's very linear. It, yeah, it's very, very, very linear. And I think one of the single hardest places where clients a lot of times get stuck, especially in that build, borrow, and die sort of uh, flow is thinking of their money as a waterfall or as a flow and that the more right. you can keep it moving to do other things, you start to pick up two or three or four different uses uh, out of every dollar and it becomes much, much more efficient. Right. Uh, but it's a really hard, it's the hard mindset, mindset shift that we're, we see a lot of times. Well, I think you're right. It's that money is not buckets. It is a dynamic system. I can't, I mean, you say that so many times and I don't think you can say it enough because it is so easy to just say this money's doing one thing, this money's doing one thing, but that's not what I mean. If as a business owner, if you have an employee who shows up and they only have one capability, you're probably not really excited about that unless for right. some reason it's a very specialized <laughs> process. Right. But if you have a receptionist who's only going to answer the phone and she can't greet someone that's walking in, or he can't greet somebody that's walking in and they can't do anything other than that, then you're probably not going to keep that human around for very long in well, that capacity it's the mendoza line <laughs> yeah exactly it's the mendoza line right how how good a hitter do they need to be to, to make up for their crappy fielding or right? <laughs> right so when when you look at this i think um i think what you're talking about the dynamic system actually leads us into the second way that we see 
wealthy people uh, buy, borrowing, and dying. And this is really interesting right. because I oftentimes think this is an asset class that gets ignored among middle-class Americans because there's a lot of rhetoric that's polarizing around insurance. But when you look at right. what a lot of our wealthy clients are doing, they're actually really aggressively funding permanent life insurance contracts because once they no longer qualify for a Roth IRA, real estate is one area that they get some tax efficiencies. But this idea of tax-free growth and access to your money um, another vehicle that you can do that in with really an unlimited capacity to fund it is permanent life insurance and specifically whole life insurance. And there's lots of other flavors, but um, we prefer this one because of how it works contractually, except it's very important right. here to overfund it so that you're building it for cash and that your contract has the right legal features. Because what we see people do in this capacity is they'll aggressively fund the insurance contract. The money is growing tax deferred, but they have the ability to take loans against that policy from the insurance contract uh, for a company that are completely unstructured so that all of their money continues earning and growing for them, but they still have use of that capital tax-free. And so a lot of times this gets partnered with that real estate strategy, yep. especially among uh, very wealthy, right? It's that they flow it into the contract, they borrow against the contract, and then they use that as a down payment on the real estate with maybe some traditional funding as well. But then what happens is they're getting two, you know, two uses out of essentially the same capital. And so when you think about what's happening just in the contract itself, just to go back to the little bucket we're talking about, as opposed to it flowing into the other, is that you get all of the accumulation on that money without giving up the use of it. You can take it at some point, you're going to borrow against that contract, set the dividends to pay the loan interest. And then whenever you pass away, the loan gets wiped out, subtracted from the death benefit, and whatever's remaining in the death benefit goes income tax-free to your heirs. So you can definitely see the similarities and the parallels here uh, with what is happening in the real estate. But the idea that I can flow my dollars into one, borrow against it to get to the other, just means I'm getting really a multiplier effect because right. of that dynamic system. Exactly. Right. And it's, and it's that flow. I think the flow from in, from one, the insurance into the real estate, the real estate back into the insurance. And then, then the real estate in your first example starts acting as its own bucket for flowing, flowing money out to go buy more real estate. I mean, it's, it is a very, very, very dynamic system. And that's, that's really cool. And if you've never seen it before, it's really scary. Like it's <laughs> right. not scary, but my like, friends aren't doing this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think that's it. And we, we had the last podcast, we talked about this, uh, this idea of inertia and momentum, right? If I'm looking at what I could go do that, that pull back to what, you know, is really mm -hmm. hard, but thinking through those multiple uses, the tax efficiencies, the liquidity, the flexibility, those are all like, uh, in, in spades when you know how to make it work, when you know how to pull the levers. When I think this goes to having that growth mindset and approaching everything you do as a beginner, right? right? The beginner's mindset is yep. show me something. And I, I, I think it is really interesting um, because for the most part, I work with people who are sort of mid-career. And I think some of that is just a function of age. But right. I do find sometimes, especially with younger people, that beginner's mindset, because there's almost a Something, and it's not everybody, but occasionally we run into people that are almost like defensive about their own knowledge. They want to be seen as an expert and capable. And because they're just coming out of school and older people are talking down to them, they're trying to prove what they know. 
And, um, and it almost comes off, then they aren't necessarily listening in the same way that someone who's been knocked down a few times is going to listen because they're like, Hey, wait a minute. I thought I knew these things. I'm going to approach this very differently. There's a, there's a a slight difference there. So I think that beginner's mentality and the ability to see flows of money is really key. So Eric, um, you know, the other kind of one of the other places that we see the same idea, maybe not so much. Well, yeah, I mean, buy, bar and die, I think fits with this one too. But um, some of the tax efficiencies uh, show up in different ways with other accounts. Can you talk a little bit about Roth's backdoor conversions, uh, that sort of thing? Because we see that happening a lot right now too. Right. Right. Well, one of the great things about a Roth and the great and the things that I sort of hate about IRAs and 401s in general, uh, and, and I'll sort of juxtapose, juxtaposition, I'll, I'll compare them and con- juxtapose them together, right? That's boy, that's horrible English. I, who learned me how to spoke? So the, the thing you see is that in an IRA and 401ks, I'm going to go dump all my money in there because I'm getting a tax break is what they tell themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I make 100K, I make 200K, but I'm putting in this money and now my taxable income is reduced. Yay for me, I'm doing good things with my life. The problem is, is that they don't, they don't really think about the back end of that story is that yes, you're, you're saving money at the very beginning, but you're saving money on the seed, but then your money grows for the next 20 or 30 years and you pay all that money in taxes all of that money that's coming out is taxable. So a lot of people are starting to realize that, hey, maybe this isn't the best strategy. And to Mary's point, they're starting to do what's called a backdoor Roth conversion. So usually once you, once you make a certain amount of money, you lose the ability to contribute to Roth. But if I have an old IRA or an old 401k, I can convert that IRA over into a Roth. Now, the bad part about that is I'm going to pay some tax during that conversion because I've got to go from pre-tax to post-tax. But once you pay that tax, that's it. There's no more money that, that comes out of your pocket. After that. Yeah, it's all right. tax-free after that, right? Um, and so a lot of times, especially as, as people start to become more and more affluent, they start to look like, they start to look out in the future and say, well, hey, I've, I've got a giant target on my back. Mm-hmm. Uh, the government needs money. They see me, I've got a lot of money. I'm, I'm, they're coming for me, right? right. So they're, they're, they're willing to take that hit at the beginning convert that IRA to that Roth, do, do what we call a backdoor conversion on some of that, convert that over, start to build that Roth account and, and enjoy that tax-free growth on the other end. And then sometimes they'll also do self-directed accounts, meaning they'll, they'll take that Roth IRA or that IRA and go do private equity deals or, or real estate or, or any number of other cash flowing assets. And then they'll use that money and it, it all cycles back through again, back to that flow and the account gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So what would have been maybe a hundred thousand dollar account over the over your lifetime has become a million, two million dollars. But once you get to that million or two million dollars point, all of it's tax free. All of it comes back to you, and you get to pass it on tax free, which is even cooler. Right, and I think too, just to stick with the buy, borrow, and die side of things, um, you can also do a securities back line of credit. And so if you did yep. not want to take the money out of the Roth because it was growing and you didn't want to take a distribution because you wanted to keep it growing, you can always access the capital or at least a, a portion of it, 50 to 75%, depending on how it's invested. Uh, and that's kind of the, the norm range. It's not a guarantee, but most securities back uh, lines of credit will allow you to keep that money invested and growing. And then you have access to capital um, and you can pay the loan interest again from the growth off of the account. 
um, or you can right. eventually wipe out the line of credit if you want to. But this idea of keeping all of your money working for you while you have use of the dollars, I think is really, really like key. And then yep. I think the second thing that is important in these strategies is the tax efficiencies. And most of us don't think that way. I mean, I can say that most of the people who come into my office come in and they're like, okay, well, I've been trained that I need to put all my money in the stock market. So let's just do that. And I'm going to let it sit there and I'm never going to touch it. And I think one of the things that is absolutely imperative is that if you do that, your dollar is only doing one thing for you. And it's not that that's bad. It's good, right? but good is the enemy of the great. And a lot of times people settle, right? If great is possible, good isn't good enough. And so our job is to take kind of those ideas, right? And then springboard them into something bigger and better and more efficient. And obviously how tax law changes is gonna affect all of these strategies over the next right. couple of years, because there's a lot being proposed at this particular very moment of recording um, that could change some of these strategies. But I think that's part of the reason that some become more relevant at different times, because if they, if they change the ability to have unlimited tax-free growth in the 1031 exchanges, then we need to find a different way to do that. And the life insurance treatment right now allows for that. And then the partnering of those right. two things makes it even better. And then when you add in the market-based side with the Roth or the backdoor Roth, now you can see that you actually have real diversification and going to that dynamic system. Part of a dynamic system is making sure that you are not too concentrated in any one area that you right. really should be blending across multiple. Well, and that efficiency of assets or efficiency and diversity across the assets, I think is another key component. I think the traditional advice is, I'm not sure what your problem is, but there's a mutual fund out there to solve it. Right. And so it's it's very, very, very market-based, uh, which is great. I, I'm, I'm a market guy. I love the market, but it is just one tool set in the bag. I, I don't play, I play golf horribly, so I'm not going to use this analogy with great uh, authenticity, but I, I don't have a giant bag full of drivers when I go play golf, right? I've got drivers and putters and, and hybrids and, and I've got the whole gamut and I'm using each of them at different points, depending on what's going on. And to your point about sort of the tax law changes, there's an old adage that no plan survives first contact with right. the enemy. Mm -hmm. And so I think this other idea of having this more diversified approach to, to wealth and that flow approach to wealth allows you to pivot and adjust and maneuver around when things change. Because the only thing I know is that the tax laws five minutes from now are probably going to be different than they are today. Yeah. The only certainty in life is change. That right. and death and taxes, I think are right. the other two. So right. maybe not the best quote, but I think change is, uh, it, it's going to happen. And so the plan definitely has to be able to adapt. Um, if you right. have any questions about other ways to um, be efficient in the, the buy, borrow, and die, or as we like to call it, build, borrow, and pass it along strategy. <laughs> We'd love to be uh, involved in that conversation. You can reach me at The Wealth Woman, either on Facebook or Instagram. You can also find me as Mary Lyons on uh, LinkedIn, and you can check out the Wealth Woman website, or you can go to the company website, which is benchmarkincome.com. Eric, how can they find you? I'm at Economics with Eric on link on uh, Facebook and Instagram, and I'm just Eric Alexander on LinkedIn. So you can you can find me there as well. Thanks for joining uh, us. Have a great day. Have, have a great day.